0: morning everyone so uh, good to be with you here and uh, it feels like it's been about a year and a half since i've done this (laughs) so really really happy to be with you this morning Um, as chris shared we're in the last two weeks of the book of james and i want to start today by reminding us that james is writing uh, a letter this book is really a letter to christians just like you and me except these believers were under enormous pressure. Enormous pressure because they were literally running for their lives, being persecuted for their faith. And so I want you to just imagine with me, let's just do this real quick thought exercise where you're sitting down having dinner with your family, with your kids or your parents, and you're in a strange place because you just got there because you've been running for a week and You don't quite know where this place is, but you're having to eat, and all of a sudden the door comes crashing in, and these soldiers come in, and they carry you and your kids and your parents and grandparents out the door to either be imprisoned, executed, or worse, and this is the daily reality of the believers to which James is writing this very letter that we've been in for the past, uh, I think it's about two, three months now. And um, they're being chased because they are considered a threat to the commonwealth uh, because of their strange religious practices and beliefs. They've never heard of this Jesus. They've never seen him. Um, and, and these Christians are wreaking havoc. They're, they're, they're causing damage to the economy. They're refusing to burn and pinch incense to their go- local gods and goddesses. And the entire city is blaming them for any misfortune that falls on the city. It's those Christians who refuse to bow and to, and to, and to offer incense that we're having uh, these economic problems, this disease, this fire. Whatever goes wrong politically, economically, socially, the Christians are being blamed. And so you can see the situation. It's dire, high pressure, high stress. And Jesus, or excuse me, James is saying to them, there is another reality here that I want you to connect to. Obviously, it's difficult for us today in the West to connect to this reality for these believers, at least uh, for now. But on another level, there are many of you here today, really all of us here today, who are under a kind of pressure, dealing with the trouble or, or uh, a suffering and uh, and it's for a variety of reasons maybe because you decided you weren't going to take the low road at work and because of that you're getting paid less money and you really need that extra income but you decided you know what I'm not going to do what everyone else is doing I'm going to stick to my guns and my and my beliefs or or maybe you've you've made that bold decision to let people know that you're a believer that you're a Christian and now people are calling you hateful for the very beliefs that you think are what causes you to love. And I'm hearing this a lot more recently, more than I thought we would at this point in time. Or maybe you're you're you're, you're under some kind of relational pressure, or financial, or physical, and the reasons go on and on. We all are under some kind of pressure at this very moment. Maybe you're saddled with the new and heavy responsibility of caring for aging parents, and this is something that I'm starting to uh, deal with just recently, just the the, the weight of new lives uh, on on your shoulders. But what I want to tell you today is that James's word speaks to all of us today. It's a simple but powerful truth to encourage us. And so go with me to James 5, 7 through 12. We're going to have it up here on the screen, and we'll read it together. James writes to these believers on the run. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for your presence. We love you. We love your presence. Father, we need to hear from you. We need to be encouraged this morning for the various things that we're carrying in our hearts. We ask, God, that you would break into our minds, into our hearts this morning through the Holy Spirit, to break chains, to dispel lies and to replace them with your glorious truth. God, we need your help. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come right now. Open our eyes and our ears to Jesus. Glorify Jesus in our midst right now. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Chris shared, as he he, uh, spoke about the rich and the powerful people who were persecuting this church... And, and all the awful things they were doing and then the, the end that they would meet for doing so. And, and today, in our passage, James takes a breath and he begins to encourage these very same believers who are being chased. He starts in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also... Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He exhorts them, be patient. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand, James writes. And how do you exercise that patience? By establishing your heart, he writes. So in just a few words here, James is reminding us believers of something so crucial, so central So big that it can fade into the background for us as believers. And it's this truth that there is a greater story that you and I are right now living in. It's a greater story that that as followers of Jesus we are invited into every day. And James is saying, yes, I know things are incredibly difficult right now. It's in, In fact, unbelievably, it's unthinkable the things that you guys are going through. But he is coming back for us. He's coming back for So be patient like a farmer who's planted tiny seeds into a soil and is waiting, just waiting for the shoots to break through. He says, establish your heart, he says in verse 8, in the truth that he is coming back for us. Establish your heart in the God narrative that ends with his return and in another sense begins his reign. James is saying, come with me, come up. Someone's like, like, hey, let's get in this balloon, let's get up to 30,000 feet. You haven't been here in a while. I want you to see the greatest story in which the sufferings you are now enduring cannot be compared to the rewards for your steadfastness, for your patience. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. It's going to be really good. A kingdom of justice, of righteousness, of peace, joy, and wisdom. But not only that. James is saying in a manner of speaking, his return is also the beginning of an age in which every single yearning of your heart the yearning to be be loved and enjoyed by God, the yearning to be fascinated, the yearning to be beautiful, the yearning to be great, the yearning for intimacy, the yearning for significance, all these yearnings will be met one day perfectly in the age to come. It's coming, he's saying. I want to try to illustrate this point about how we are to wait. And, and, and James is using this farming metaphor. He says, think of the farmer, right? And he's being so patient with these seeds. It's a brilliant illustration. Well, just recently, I, um, I was watching this short documentary about caviar. Excuse me. Caviar. I, I don't know if any of you have had caviar. It's really delicious or disgusting, depending on who you are. But there are eggs from a fish called sturgeon, and these are prehistoric fish, and they get to be about five, about five feet, excuse me, uh, long in their maturity. And uh, but at the heart of this, uh, at, at its heart, this documentary wasn't about fish. It was really about a dream and a vision, and it tells the story of this Korean man, who in the late 90s um, saw that his home country of Korea was. Rising out of economic hardship and wealth was on the rise uh, if, if you guys remember back in the 90, early 90s Korea went through a terrible Economic tragedy anyway, they were on the rise and he had the forethought to think you know, maybe soon People will want to have have the money firstly, but once he tried this and eat this in you know, a luxurious food this this delicacy really and so what he did was uh, he he, he uh, this dream starts to build up his heart. He goes to Russia and he buys 200 young sturgeon. Literally buys live fish, 200 of them. And, and there's this part in the documentary that's really funny where he's explaining to the customs people what he's doing with all these fish. He's, telling, he's explaining his dream and they're confused and they don't know why he has so many fish. They finally get him through and, and that's how the dream begins. And so he buys 200 fish and he has them, but there's a catch turns out it takes at least 10 years for a young sturgeon to develop develop into a mature egg producer. 10 years. But that's not the shocking part. The shocking part, the shocking fact is that this Korean man spent a minimum of a million dollars each year to feed, to reproduce, and to care for these sturgeons. And so, by 2009, so this is 12 years later, and over 12 million dollars later, because that's 12 years, a million dollars a year, without a single egg, the 200 sturgeon that this man brought from Russia had become 50,000 sturgeon, and they had just, a lot of them had just begun to produce eggs, caviar. Can you guess how much an ounce of beluga caviar goes for today? Just think of a number in your head. It's $400 for an ounce of caviar. By 2013, his farm was producing six tons of caviar a year. And here's the part that got me. He gives this interesting side note towards the end of the documentary. He said, Over the years, many Koreans enamored with this idea and what he was doing came to him and asked him if they could buy some of his sturgeon. And so he would sell them young sturgeon. But he said 99% of those people gave up after a few years. What was the difference? What what made him succeed where they had failed? He gives this answer. he loved this. He said, for them, it was a business idea. But for me... It was a dream. What's the difference between an idea and a dream? I think this is what James is getting at. When it's just an idea, it comes and it goes. There's little to no investment. Something might be done or nothing. Another idea comes along, and so that replaces the idea that you just had. But a dream, a dream is something else entirely. It captures the heart. And so a question for us today, I think James is posing, is has something so captured your heart that you are willing to wait for it? Not just days, or not just weeks, or even years, but decades. That is a dream. So captured your heart that you continue to invest, and tend, and care for it. That is a dream. Dreams, when our hearts are established in them, can foster not just weeks, months, or years, but decades of patience. We wait and we wait and we wait some more and we wait on top of that because we believe and have been committed to this dream in our hearts. And here's the thing. I believe Jesus has a dream. There is a passage in John 14. A lot of people call this section of Scripture from 13 to 17 in John the greatest teaching by the greatest teacher ever. And right in the middle of that, Jesus, in a moment of deep intimacy, shares his dream with his disciples. And not by coincidence, it's a a moment wrought with uncertainty and pressure because Jesus just tells him in John 12 that there's trouble coming and it's coming for sure. And so in John 14, he tells this to his disciples. Here it is. He says, "'Let not your hearts be troubled. "'Believe in God. "'Believe also in me.'" This is the seed that Jesus plants into his disciples' hearts in a moment when they are distressed about where it's all going. They're freaking out, and Jesus just lays this down on them. He's saying, Hold on, believe in God, believe also in me. Everything I've taught you, everything you've witnessed, the miracles, the deliverance, the demons submitting and fleeing. The freedom you feel in your heart at this moment, the forgiveness that you've been able to receive and offer to others, the healings, the people having hope, the light you see in their eyes. You've placed your life into the God story for the past three years. I know it looks bleak now. And in fact, it's only going to get worse, he says. But here's how the story ends. He says, there's this place. I call it my father's house. It's actually an entire kingdom. And when I say rooms, what I mean is mansions. And what I'm about to do to give up my life on the cross, that is the preparation needed so that you can see my Father's house and touch it with your own hands. And I'm going to pay the price for you. And if I do that, I'm also coming back for you to take, me, take you with me. Why? So that where I am, you will also be so that we can be together forever and ever for a billion years and a billion more. That is Jesus's, that's his caviar dream. He's saying, that's my dream. So the second question I think James asks of us today is, has this seed, this John 14 dream, been planted in your heart? And how would you know? How would you know if this is really your dream? In the very next verse, in verse 9, James gives us a litmus test of sorts. He writes, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You can forgive people who are under pressure, running for their lives, for, for grumbling a bit. And yet James is saying right here, he says, Don't grumble against one another. We all know what grumbling is not. It's not wailing and groaning. Those are legitimate heart cries of a heart that's dealing with a lot of pain and and loss and suffering. Grumbling is is something different altogether. It's, It's a kind of complaining, but not just complaining. It's a complaining accompanied by a bad temper. And in my experience when I'm grumbling, it's because I'm discouraged about something something at work, or in a relationship, or managing something internally, and when we're discouraged, a sure sign is grumbling about others, or a situation, and we begin to blame shift, and we place attention on other people, or on situations, to, uh, in, a, in an effort to bolster ourselves about how we're feeling about ourselves in the midst of all this insecurity, and fear, And at the root of that discouragement, I will almost always discover that I'm believing a lie, either about God or about how God sees me, and if he's for me. And at its root, grumbling, I believe, is fueled by a false narrative, by a bad story. That if business doesn't pick up, I'll lose everything, and I won't be worthy of love, or if I feel a disconnection in my marriage that I'll be abandoned because she's finally seen something in me that's going to cause her to run. There are these lies in my head and, and they can be so debilitating and, and lies can knock us out and they are the number one weapon of the enemy. right? Satan's name is, he, he's the father of lies, Jesus says. But this is why James suddenly mentions grumbling. He knows when your dream is in heaven and his story God's story is your north star. Your heart is secure. Your heart is secure. And and you're not easily deceived and not easily discouraged. And so circumstances here on earth no longer hold over you the thing your heart wants most. Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart is also. And so where your dream is, you might be able to say, instead of treasure, your heart is also. In other words, your treasure is no longer here on earth. Your treasure is in heaven, James is saying. And it's there only because the one who treasures you has paid the price for you. I want to try and illustrate this point a little more. I'm I'm hoping this is helpful. I debated whether or not to share this, but it's helpful for me, so I'll share with you. Have you ever been in a situation where you know you're leaving one job and going to a better one? But nobody else knows, only you, right? Overnight, you become a really dangerous person. And, and I say that because you just don't care anymore, right? Any of you have been in that situation? You just don't care. Well, you care because you're a Christian, so you care a little bit. But you kind of, you know what I mean, you just don't care. And so because you don't care, all of a sudden it's not about you as much, and you're not as concerned about retaining your position there. You know, in other words, you're free, and so all of a sudden, you're telling people the truth when they ask you your opinion, right? And you're like, actually, Sally, you're late a lot. You know, things like that start coming out of your mouth and you're giving feedback about the company and it's falling on deaf ears, but who cares? I don't, you know, it's like you're just, you're not that concerned anymore. And then all of a sudden, people are like, wait, she's a truth teller. And they start coming to you, to your surprise, and and your thoughts and your your insights are being sought after. And at every meeting after a question is asked, everyone's eyes turn to you first to hear what you're going to say. And this has become your reputation And, and surprisingly a new measure of respect is being afforded to you. All because you know this place is no longer it for you. You're just trying to help this company that you know you're leaving behind saying things you were previously afraid to say. Maybe you used to grumble about this and that. Now, now you're risking saying some of these things, even, you know, maybe even praying for asking if you could pray for people, because why not? You're risking the ridicule and, 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 and rejection, because you know what, this is, I'm leaving in two weeks. You might even say your newfound freedom allows you to, to love, and that you're loving the company by giving them real feedback. You're loving the people by really showing up and telling them what you think. Not everything, but, you know, some of it. And what is going on? And you're like, God, I kind of like this feeling. James is saying, don't grumble because you're not here forever. You have a kingdom waiting for you where the perks are really good. Unbeatable, in fact. And the king can't wait to welcome you home. Establish your heart in this reality, he says. Be patient, be courageous, and continue to love and give, and those around you will notice. Did you know that there is a fragrance to freedom, friends? It smells like heaven, and when you move in that freedom, everyone around you can smell it. And, And people will be inexplicably drawn to you. Others will hate you for it. Because it goes against everything that they've built their lives upon. There are a few uh, in the middle, I believe. So I just want to recap here before we move on to this last point. If we plant our hearts in heaven, in the greater storyline, we have freedom here on earth to wait, to love, to give, to be courageous, to suffer because we know that in his infinite love and wisdom, he's leading us and that we have a home in the Father's house and in Jesus' presence. And finally, moving on to verse 10 and 11, James now transitions to giving examples of steadfastness and patience in the midst of pressure. And he gives the example of of prophets and, and Job, and he writes, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James presents Job as a primary example, a primary example of patience and suffering. Let me give you a one-minute recap of Job's story, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with it. His story appears in the Old Testament. And he's shown as this really righteous man with a large family and enormous wealth. And Satan approaches God, and and they have a conversation about Job. And and God actually is the one who brings up Job as an example. And Satan then goes on to accuse Job of being a fair-weather worshiper, meaning he only worships you, God, because you've blessed him. Look at all he has. And so God gives Satan authority to take everything from him. And so literally in the matter of a day, Job loses everything, wealth, family, kids, it's all gone. But Job's faith holds steady. Then Satan, seeing that, gets permission to touch his health. And so God gives that permission to Satan, and he breaks out in sores all over his body, and there's this scene where he's uses pieces of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sits in the ashes of what used to be his home. That's how the book of Job begins in the first chapter. As Job begins to process the pain and the loss of his friends over 30-some-odd chapters, you start to see defiance growing in Job's heart. It's, It's small, but it's there. It's a real defiance. He's not cursing God yet. But it's defiance. And then God shows up and speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. And, here, and let me just say this. Here's what God doesn't do in that moment. He doesn't mention Satan. He doesn't even mention what Job is going through, his suffering, his pain, his loss. He mentions none of that. But what he does do is he reveals himself to Job. saying, Job, this is who I am in a manner of speaking. And Job begins to see God in all his wisdom and power and beauty, and it causes him to repent for his defiance. In the very last chapter of Job, Job confesses to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Look what he says. He says, but now my eye sees you. He so I heard about you now I see you I see who you are through the painful journey Job sees God and it is enough and the defiance that was in his heart and this is a crucial point church the defiance it was there all along it just surfaced like impurities in, in gold when it's heated and Job is given an opportunity to repent of it And James, with not an ounce of irony or sarcasm, says of Job in verse 11 in our our text, he says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. He's talking about Job. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Church, that literally makes no sense to a worldly mind. This is heavenly insight that the Holy Spirit is giving to James and to us. And so James, in all his wisdom, shouts from the rooftops, Thank God and count it all joy when you meet trials of all kinds, every single kind. Because your hearts will be exposed. Defiance, rage, pride, greed, selfish lust, self-centeredness, religion, judgment, Whatever we believe justifies our existence apart from God. Whatever we believe justifies our existence even before God. It all rises to the surface. And that's what pressure does. That's what pressure does. It exposes, in Paul's words, the mystery of lawlessness of our hearts. And in the exposure, we're given the opportunity to repent. Because he is so Merciful. And in that place, God reveals himself to us as the God of compassion, as the God who was steadfast for us, who suffered persecution for us and on our behalf, and who is now with unimaginable patience developing in us wholehearted love for him through the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. I want to end Uh, This, uh, with a fun story, it also happens to be a very personal story. Uh, My brother, as Chris shared, my brother and I started a restaurant in Midtown about six years ago. We opened another one uh, in the Fide three years after, so three years ago, and just this past July, we closed both of them. Um, As a result of COVID, it wasn't exactly, I mean, it's COVID-related, it's a very long and... Um, to me, heartbreaking story, but uh, it had a lot to do with um, our relationship with our landlords. I bless our landlords. Um, I, I, you know, we, it's it's not their fault. They have their lives and their business to take care of. So, but we couldn't come eye to eye with a lot of uh, the details. So, we decided to close them very suddenly and very unexpectedly. And so, my brother and I were heartbroken and and really devastated. This was our livelihood. Um, <clears throat> So uh, what we did in the closing, it's, if you've never closed a restaurant, it's, it's in some ways harder than opening a restaurant because there's so many things that you need to just kind of hit the brakes on and details that you forgot about that were just running in the background. You're, you're realizing, oh my God, this is actually a whole other job. Part of that was selling some of the equipment uh, and, 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 and just the fixtures in the restaurant And so we were closing the one in Midtown first, and this was the very last day, and what we had done was put up most of it online in an auction, and people bid on everything. Everything pretty much sold. And there was that last day where people who had bid on the auction and won were coming in to pick up their equipment, the furniture, the tables, the mirrors, everything. Everything went out the door. And I was there that last day and, you know, trying to be helpful, trying to make sure the right things were taken by the right people. And uh, it was in that place that I met these two guys from the Bronx. Uh, I won't use their real names. We'll say um, one guy is Frankie and the other one Steve. Frankie owns a cigar shop in the Bronx. And his friend Steve came because he has a truck. And they had bought all the tables in the restaurant that my wife and I had spent hours designing. These were custom-made tables. They were like hundreds of dollars. And he was buying them pennies on the dollar. I think each table was like $19 they went for and so I'm watching these tables literally be taken out the front door. And uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm holding the door open for Frankie and Steve. And, and Frankie starts, and you could tell they're real good buddies, they're, they're friends. Frankie starts complaining about Steve about how he's not doing any work. And he's like, this, this guy, straight from Central Casting, just look at this guy. And, and Steve was like, "Are you kidding me, man? I'm in so much pain right now." And I heard that, and I, and I looked at Steve, and I said, Are "You in pain right now?" He said, "Oh yeah, man. I've got metal in my arm, in my hip, in my back, in my leg." And I'm like, "Oh my God, what happened?" And he said, "Well, I fell. I said I was in construction. and I used to be a crane operator, and one day I fell out of the cab of the crane, like eight feet, and hit things on the way down, and I woke up in the hospital." Multiple surgeries, but he's telling me his whole story right there as they're like holding a table. And I was like, Jesus. And I'm in the habit of doing this where if I meet strangers and they tell me about their pain, I'll immediately ask to pray for them just because I know I'll never see them again. So good on you, right? So I said, Well, can I pray for you? And he's, you know, and I get mixed reactions, but 90%, I think about 90% of the time, most people are very open to being prayed for. I don't know if that's your experience. He said, yeah, I believe in that stuff. Sure. I said, well, can I lay my hands on you? He said, yeah, okay. I literally prayed a 15-second prayer for Steve. And that was it. And he said, thanks. And, uh, and we went our kind of separate ways in the restaurant. Usually we walk, you know, if I pray for someone, they're gone, I'm gone. We never see each other I never hear about what happens. Frankie and Steve are still there 30 minutes later because they're still grabbing tables, still grabbing other things. So, 30 minutes later, I'm doing something, and Steve comes up behind me and taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around, and it's Steve, and his eyes are like wide open. And he says to me, Bro, I don't know what's going on, but I haven't felt this good in years. And he shows me his arms. He goes like this He goes, Look at my arms. I got goosebumps. And immediately I was like, Oh! And I started getting goosebumps. I was like, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. I haven't felt this good in a really long time. And then immediately the thought was, ask him to try something he hasn't done in, you know, since the accident. I said, well, Steve, do you want to try something you haven't done since you know, you've been hurt? And he said, I was just thinking that. He said, I haven't touched my feet in four years. And I said, what? He said, yeah, my wife and my daughter have to take off my shoes and put them on every night and every morning. And I said, well, do you want to try touching your feet? And he said, okay. And you got to understand, like, I'm standing there, his friend Frankie said, this is a vulnerable moment for this guy. He's taking a risk here, risking embarrassment, risking pain, but he's going for it. And so he slowly reaches down, and he touches his feet. And he looks up at me. He's got tears in his eyes. And he's like, you don't understand, I have not touched my feet in four years. He's like, my wife and my daughter are not going to believe me. They're going to freak out. And his friend, Steve, uh, Frankie, is just looking at me, and looking at Steve, looking back at me. He's like, we're taking you with us to the next auction. <laughs> and I'm like, and then I'm like, Steve, man, God loves you. He sees you. And uh, he's like, can I get your phone number? I was like, okay, sure, of course. And I gave him my phone number. He's like, I'm going to call you. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe. And that was it. And they left. Two weeks later, I get a phone call. It's Steve. And he's like, hey, it's me, Steve. Do you remember me? You prayed for me in the restaurant? I'm like, of course I remember you, Steve. How could I forget you? He's like, you don't understand I've been telling everyone about what happened that day. It's like my wife, my daughter. They cannot believe. He said, I lost my life. My life was gone, but now I have it again. He said he had been living on disability, just sitting at home. He tries to run like an online business here and there. He said for the first time in eight years, he feels like he has his life back. I said, Steve, do you know that God loves you? He's like, yeah, man. I said, do you go to church? He's like, I used to. I used to go, but I got to go back. I got to get back. And I was like, yeah, man, God loves you. You got to get around the community. We talked and talked for a while. I shared the gospel with him. I'm so happy for Steve. But church, can I tell you, I feel like that healing was for me. Because God, because God in the midst of the literal garage sale of my livelihood, for the past six years, he showed up. He revealed himself. It was for me like a, a little tap on the shoulders. It was him saying, hey, James, I see you. I haven't forgotten about you. I love you. And I had to repent of the offense in my heart for the lies I was believing and tempted to believe about it all. Ellie, if I can invite you up. God the Father is preparing a people for Jesus, his son. But not not just any people. A beautiful bride who is mature in love, confident in her father, blameless in her ways. He wants a bride for his son who wants to be with her, not because she has to, not because she's forced to, but because she realizes that's the very thing she was created for. My son asked an interesting question this week as I was preparing for the sermon. He asked if God is so powerful and Jesus already died on the cross, why doesn't he just make heaven and earth one right now and end the suffering? It's a good question for a 10 year old, right? It's a good question. And I think the answer is that... <sighs> the answer is that he's patient. If he were to come today, so many people would curse God to his face. Do you know that? If he were to show up in the flesh today, we would curse him to his face. We think if we saw God in his glory, that all of a sudden we would fall in love with him. We would not. We would curse him to his face. We would say, God, leave me alone. I am the king of my life. Let me live my life. We think we know how we would respond to the living God if he were to show in person. We don't. Paul says, the mystery of the lawlessness of our hearts, who can understand it? We don't want a king. We don't want him. But we need him. He is the reason we were created, to be in relationship with him, to be loved by him, to be adored by him, to be treasured by him. He is right now in the pressure orchestrating the least, let me put it this way, orchestrating the least amount of pressure to bring about the maximum amount of wholehearted love for him on the earth, not just in you and me, but in all in all people and the pressure is rising church can i say that i will say that the pressure is rising because he knows without him we are ruined and so in his patience we are growing in love church through a furnace yes but we are growing in love so that's all i have I want to invite you now to respond. You close your eyes. Jesus, thank you for being patient with us. I want you to take some time to talk to the Lord about the pressure you are feeling right now. Name it. It's financial. It's physical. It's relational. Whatever it is, name it right now and just talk to him. Put it out there. And then I want you to take the step of faith to thank God for that pressure. Because he's using that pressure to surface things that are there, that were always there. Maybe you don't know about it yet, but it's there. And if you look carefully, Holy Spirit will guide you. Holy Spirit, guide us to know what's in our hearts that you want out, that you are so merciful to allow to rise. And we give that to you. And give it to him. Repent of it. Let's do that. Receive the forgiveness that he offers you now. And ask him to anchor your heart to his heart, to his dream for you. In my Father's house are many rooms.
1: The Spirit of God is here. It's moving powerfully throughout this room. I want to ask you to do something. If, If the Lord is speaking to you, meeting you, if this word was for you, just right where you're at, would you just raise one hand? I'm going to ask James, I'm going to ask the prayer team, Just begin to work your way around the room and pray that 15-second prayer that James prayed at that restaurant. Whatever it is that you're needing, that God is speaking to you, he's here right now. I don't want us to miss this opportunity. We had scheduled to have communion today, but I believe he's breaking bread right now with us. He's meeting us. Right now, as we worship the prayer team, if you could just go around, begin to pray for those that have raised their hands. Let's seek God together. Let's lean into his presence. Jesus. Jesus. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're a chain breaker. You're a miracle worker. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. Raise that hand higher if if you're still waiting for prayer. They're coming around. Don't, Don't drop it. Jesus. Jesus. Heal bodies. Restore hope. Jesus. Jesus. Yes. Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's sing. is still coming around, if you're still waiting for prayer, if you see someone next to you that's waiting for prayer, don't hesitate. Ask them, would you mind me praying for you? Just a few more moments. The Lord is doing a work. prepare to receive communion. If I can invite us to stand. Hopefully as you came in you received communion cup if you did not. If we missed you by mistake, could you just raise your hand and we'll be quick to get one to you right now. preparing, feel free to open up the first kind of layer, get the bread. First Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. With the wafer in hand, Jesus, thank you for your broken body. Lord, if life never goes as we thought it should, if it never goes according to our plans, if we find ourselves waiting, Lord, we know this, that on Calvary you were broken for us, that there is no mystery as to whether we are loved, as to whether we are deemed worthy in your sight, as to whether we're deserving of the grace that you give us, not because of, we can earn it, but because you are so lavish in your love. Thank you for your broken body. Let's receive the bread together. If you can prepare to receive the cup at this time. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That word proclaim means to preach, to declare. Perhaps you didn't know, but at this moment, you and I are collectively preaching. You're giving a sermon right now. And the sermon is first to us and to the world. We're declaring that because he was broken, we could be made whole. We're declaring to ourselves that we are loved despite what our circumstances try to lie to us, that we're not forsaken, that we are adopted into his family, that we bear his name. Every time we come to the Lord's table, God preaches that over us, and we get to join him in that proclamation. You are loved. You are redeemed. You are rescued because of his great grace. Lord, thank you for your shed blood. We receive your sacrifice. We appropriate it by faith. We stand upon your love. In Jesus' name, let's receive the cup together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus with literally a few moments left before we move out. And on your way out, you can take the cup and put it in the garbage. Um, This is a moment that it's too charged with God's goodness for us to just kind of keep it moving. Could I invite us, could we raise our hands? Can we declare the words of this song that I feel are so incredibly fitting to proclaim at this moment a moment of encounter with the presence of God. Let's lift up our voice. Let's sing. Let's declare by faith the reality of God's truth together as a church.